Father in heaven, we do praise you, Lord, for the cross. We say, Hallel, praise be to Yahweh. Praise be to God. Thank you so much for the cross, and we pray that Jesus would be exalted over all. Lord, we know that the work of your spirit, your word is truth, and we pray that it would be active and real in this moment, wherever we're sitting, wherever we're standing, whatever we're doing, that you would pick up our hearts, awaken our spirits, enliven our souls so that we can come to know you more. Lord, be our light, be our truth, be our health, be our breath, be our life. Be with us in this moment, Lord, and make your word come alive so that it changes and transforms us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning as we continue to worship. If you don't remember, my name is Jeremy, and I'm glad you're here. I've got a little story I want to read to you this morning by Kevin Stump in his article entitled, Is the Devil Dead? It's in the 2001 March-April edition of The Plain Truth, and I want to go ahead and read it to you so I get it just right. Normally, I like to just talk to you like this, but I want to make sure that you hear all the details in this little nugget, and then we'll move into today's sermon. So in his article, Kevin says this. He says, in the Twilight Zone episode from 1960, an American walking through Central Europe gets caught in a raging storm. Staggering through the blinding rain, he sees an imposing medieval castle, which is a hermitage for a brotherhood of ancient monks. The reclusive monks reluctantly take him in, and later that night, the American discovers a strange cell with a man locked inside. An ancient wooden staff bolts the door shut, and the prisoner claims that he's been held captive by an insane head monk, Brother Jerome. He pleads for the American to release him, And the prisoner's kind face and gentle voice went over the American. The American then confronts Brother Jerome, who declares that the prisoner is Satan himself, the father of lies held captive by the staff of truth, the one barrier that he cannot overcome. That convinces the American that Jerome is indeed mad, and as soon as he gets a chance, he releases the prisoner who immediately transforms into a hideous horned demon and vanishes in a puff of smoke. The stunned American is horrified by what he has done. Jerome responds sympathetically, I'm sorry for you, my son. All your life you will remember this night and whom you have turned loose upon the world. I didn't believe you, the American replies. I saw him and I didn't recognize him. To which Jerome responded, That is humanity's weakness and Satan's strength. The first century Christian John Chrysostom says this, If if we are aware of a serpent nestling beside our bed, we would take trouble to kill him. But the devil nestles in our souls. And we fancy that we take no harm, but lie at ease. And the reason is that we do not see him with the eyes of our body. And yet, this is why we should rouse ourselves even more and be alert. For against an enemy who one can perceive, one may easily be on guard. 
but one that cannot be seen. If we are not continually in arms, we will not easily escape. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be watchful, be sober-minded, look out, be on alert, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood all throughout the world. If you haven't guessed already, today we're talking about the subject of spiritual warfare. We're going to look at the fifth chapter of the book of 1 Peter, beginning in verse 8. That's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And what we're going to see in this subject, in this thing, is basically four parts to spiritual warfare. The first is our struggle. The second is our enemy. The third is our weapons. And the fourth is our strategy. So hopefully you'll see sort of the consequential outline there as we move forward from what is the big picture, the battle, what's going on here, to who is it we are fighting, our enemy, and then what are our weapons that we use to stand against them, and what is the strategy by which we will prevail. So today as we talk about spiritual warfare, I want to help us via what the Bible says to learn how do we fight our enemy. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along with me as I read. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Then the final greetings from Peter to his church there in Asia Minor. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love and peace to all are in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's start out with number one, the struggle, the struggle. The other day I received a text on my phone from my friend Subash in India and what he said was basically, hey Jeremy, how's the lockdown going for you there in the States? And then I explained a little bit about what we were experiencing and I wrote back and asked the same question. And man, oh man, do you think we have it rough? Their situation is entirely different. They're only allowed to travel one kilometer, not one mile, but one kilometer from their homes and go out once a week to buy groceries. His wife, who has a health condition, is having trouble finding medical care. It is entirely different than the situation we're in. I received emails from other missionaries in Malaysia and they're talking about police marching through the streets, riot police and 
the armed forces and all this other stuff. And I know it's a struggle for us and I know it's difficult. But as I receive input from my brothers and sisters around the world, what I see is that what they're experiencing is far more dramatic than anything we're encountering here. Now, that's not to downplay anyone's suffering or loss. Corona is a terrible thing. But what I see as I look at the broader context is this thing that pushes me to think that sometimes people in other countries have it more difficult than me. And that has a couple of different effects. One for me is it's an encouragement. I feel thankful. At some point I'm like, oh, wow, you know, it's not so bad. I mean, yeah, the governor wants me to wear a mask and I got to do this and I got to do that, but I can still go to the grocery store. I can still go to the park. I can be with my family. I have food and water. I've got medical care available. I'm okay. It's really not that bad. But then at other times, I start to feel really discouraged. I miss my friends. I miss my family. I wonder when our church is going to come back together again. And I don't know what this thing is going to look like on the other side and what else we're going to lose as a result. And then I begin to think about life and I get down and it's just hard. And all of a sudden, I start feeling bad for feeling bad. I'm like, why in the world do I feel bad? Subash has it way more difficult than me. How can this be? I live in the wealthiest nation in the entire world, the United States of America. We are well provided for, and yet we still struggle. And I think that's the first and most important part of this analysis of spiritual warfare that I'm attempting to do for us today is this, is to realize that the struggle is real. Even here in the United States of America, where we have education and health care and water and all the other good stuff that other countries long for, it's still hard. The struggle is still real. And even though our situation physically may be a lot better, spiritually, it's still a battle. In fact, the Bible affirms this. It says that you're wrestling not against flesh and blood. Your battle is not necessarily physical, but it's against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When we think about a battle, most often we think about stuff like two armies going head to head. We think about north versus south or communist versus whatever, and bang, 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 they go, and the bigger, badder army wins. But what the Bible is telling us is, yeah, indeed, there are physical fights, but the greatest fight, the biggest one, is the one we don't see, the spiritual one. And that struggle is real, even if you're not in a physical battle. We are all part of the cosmic struggle of good versus evil, of God versus Satan. Now, here's the encouraging part. We're not like Star Wars. We're like, oh, no, who's going to win? Let's see what's going to happen. In reality, we have the Bible, which tells us that the battle is, in fact, already won. We have a guaranteed victory that Jesus has invaded the enemy's turf. And when he invaded as a baby, he grew up and became a man and took on the enemy on his home turf, defeated him at the cross gave his life for his friends, went into the grave, but God the Father did not let him stay there. Instead, rose him on the third day, and when he was brought forth, 
He came forth in victory, released the captives, held a victory parade, gave out spiritual gifts to men left and right, throwing candy to all the kids, and was elevated and exalted to reign on high forevermore. That is the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God. The king has come, and the king will come again. Now, in that meantime, a tension exists between his first coming and his second coming. Jesus came and defeated sin and evil and death and darkness, but he has not come a second time to rule on this earth forever and ever. So what's happened is, even though he has defeated his enemy, in the middle space, there are little skirmishes going on all throughout. And the enemy is a sore loser. He hates us desperately. He is mad. He is upset. He's passive aggressive and sometimes not even hidden. He's going full on frontal against God's people to destroy as many persons as he can before the king comes back and makes it impossible for him to do anything else ever again. So the struggle is very real. C.S. Lewis says the only two mistakes that Christians most often make is number one, making fun of Satan, and number two, ignoring him. The balance is neither nor. You don't make fun of him as if he is a weakling, and you don't ignore him as if he doesn't exist. You say, yeah, he's real, and he's powerful, but Jesus has won and has given us the weapons to defeat the enemy. We'll get to those weapons in just a minute, but I want to lean in a little bit and explain to you a little bit more about the enemy, particularly as this passage um, illuminates who he is and what he's trying to do. We don't want him to go unseen. We don't want that serpent to be sleeping under our bed to bite us when we get up. We want to know he's there and be able to kill him before he strikes. So let's begin with the first one, the, the enemy. The struggle is real is my first point. The second point is the enemy. Who is he? And in this passage, it refers to him by two names, really. At first, in 1 Peter 5 eight, it calls him the adversary. And that's actually the definition of his Hebrew name. We, in English, call him Satan. But let me ask you this fun little trivia question this morning. Does anyone here, go ahead and raise your hand. Yep, I see that hand. Good. See that hand. Yep. See. Th- no, never mind. Raise your hand if you know how to say Satan in Hebrew. Anybody? All right, here's your answer. The way you say Satan in Hebrew is Satan. It's exactly right. In fact, Satan is the Hebrew word, and that just comes across in Greek and in English as well. The word for Satan is Satan, and what it means is adversary or opponent. Satan is the prince of demons, and his role from the very beginning has been to entice humanity to sin, to estrange them from God, and persecute those who will not follow after him. His motive, listen to this carefully, this is absolutely essential for your Christian life. You must understand that everything Satan does is because he hates you. Everything Satan does is done out of hatred. However, everything that Jesus does is done out of love. And that is so important to understand the difference. You say that's an elementary concept. No, it's not. Because as soon as something bad comes into our life, what do we do? We say, Jesus, you don't love me. Who said Jesus brought that? 
Maybe he did and maybe he didn't, but you don't know. So don't assign blame to things that are unseen that you don't understand. If there is something that is truly evil in your life, God did not cause that. God is not the author of evil. Satan is. Everything that Satan does is because he hates you. But everything that Jesus does is because he loves you. And Jesus' love is bigger than Satan's hatred. Say that one more time. Jesus' love is bigger than Satan's hate. The problem is when we confuse the two and we think that something has come from Satan is from Jesus or something is from Jesus is from Satan. We don't have the time to know how to sort them out. Even Paul, he's praying, Lord, is this a thorn in the flesh from you or is this a messenger from Satan to torture me? I don't know. It's not my job necessarily to understand who it's from. It's my job to trust the one who will get me through. My good shepherd. So number one, the enemy is Satan. He is our adversary. He is our opponent. He opposes us. He hates us. He is referred to in this passage, verse 8 of chapter 5, as the adversary. That's actually the definition of the Hebrew word Satan, his proper name. The second thing he's referred to in this passage is the devil. Now let me ask you another fun trivia question. The Old Testament is in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. Does anybody know the Greek word for devil? Go ahead. Anybody know the Greek word for devil? Close. If you know Spanish, you actually know the Greek word for devil. It is diabolos. It is diabolos. And I'm not just trying to have fun with languages here, but let me assure you there's a meaning to this, and this directs how the enemy will attack you. His name is Diabolo, and that comes from two Greek words, which are actually put together. One is dia, which is a preposition. The other is bolo, which is the verb. The preposition, dia, means through, and the verb bolo means to throw or to hurl. So if you translate it literally, what you get is the through hurler or the through thrower. In other words, what this guy loves to do is throw things at us, particularly accusations. He is the accusation hurler. He is the Oops. He is the dart thrower. Now, I brought some of these darts with me this morning, and you saw from just a second ago as uh, one of the tails fell off, that they are very uh, fragile. Of course, there's a little steel tip, which I suppose if you wanted to, if you wanted to make it really effective, you could take out your handy-dandy pocket knife, and you could sharpen it up a little. Then your dart would be sharper, which would make it stick in a little bit better. But even so, it is not a blunt, heavy bludgeon or an instrument or weapon like a club or something to create trauma. If you hit someone over the head with this dart, what you would discover is that it wouldn't hurt very much. However, if you hide in the bushes... And then you pop out, you aim carefully, and 
throw the dart, then all of a sudden they might experience the effects of whatever poison you dipped it in. You see, that's exactly the way that Satan, the devil, is working. He's in fact described by the Bible as having fiery darts. They are not big, powerful weapons in the sense of nuclear or atomic bombs, but instead is what he has are all these little lies and twisted half-truths and accusations, and he has sharpened them as sharp as he possibly can so that when he sneaks up out of the darkness and spots you in his mind, hopefully completely unaware, he can zing them right at you, let them stick, and all of a sudden you fall over and have no idea what hit you. He is the Diabolo, the dart hurler. His weapon is one of precision, craftiness, sharpness. It is like a dart. In southern France, overlooking the Mediterranean Sea, stands something called the Tower of Constance. There in the 18th century, Huguenot women were in prison for decades because they refused to surrender their Reformed faith. Marie Durand entered that room in 1729 when she was only 15 years old. Three years later, her brother, Pierre, was hanged. At which time she was offered her freedom if she would agree to renounce Protestant worship. But she refused and remained captive there for 38 years, resisting cold, hunger, starvation, renunciation of her faith, despair, and even suicide. In the middle of that room, there was an opening surrounded by stones looking down through the tower. And in one stone inscribed was the word resist. Resist. This is the call of First Peter chapter 5. Our weapons that we have to withstand the fiery darts of the enemy are the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit by which we resist. Now again, we're talking spiritual, not physical. So you may be saying to me, well, Pastor Jeremy, why do you say a shield of faith? Well, we just got done talking about darts, if you remember. And so if a dart is being thrown at you, what you need is either to get out of the way or to block it with something. And what the Bible says is the best way to fight it is with the shield of faith. If you have a solid shield, these darts are too weak and too small to penetrate it. So you know what a shield is. Well, what then is faith? In the shortest way possible, the way to define faith is to say, Believing what God says. Faith is simply believing what God says. Now, that's absolutely essential and important because from the very beginning, 
that accuser, that dart thrower, that devil, our enemy, has been twisting and manipulating what God says. In the garden, at the very start, he says to Adam and Eve, particularly to Eve, did God really say? And today, in our culture, he does the exact same thing. You hear this in movies, in the news, in music, in media, in every form, even in education. Did God really say Did God really say that all human beings are sinful? There's a little good in all of us. Did God say that he would really send people to hell? A loving God wouldn't do that. Did God say that marriage is really between a male and a female? Would God get in the way of love? So many lies that are from the enemy are simply Nuggets of truth that he has taken and twisted to make it serve his own ends and our selfish desires. And the way you fight those lies is by faith, by believing what God says and not the enemy. Now, those are the big picture lies that you see in our culture. But if you're like me, you're weird, but you also struggle. And I struggle just like anybody else. And I have bad days and I have good days. Now on my bad days, sometimes I hear the devil say things like this. See if any of these sound familiar to you. You're a terrible parent. Your children will always be scarred. It's all your fault. You'll never be good enough. Why do you even try? You're wasting your time. It's all a sham. Nobody cares. You're just one person. What difference can you make? See, I told you, you'll never conquer that. Good luck. The shield of faith tells me something different. The shield of faith tells me to look at the Word of God and pick it up and hold on to His promises and look at that filthy, lying worm and say, Stop it, you liar. I do not believe you. I will not believe you. Yes, it is true that I am a sinner, but I have a Savior whose work does not depend on me. And He who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it Come hell or high water, and I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor powers nor things present, nor even you, Satan, can separate me from the love of God. Here I stand, and this is the anchor of my soul. Stand firm. Resist. The only way to fight our enemy is with the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. Living by faith means believing what God has said. And this is why it is so important for you to be in your Bibles. Because if you're not in this book, then you don't know what he said. And you can't separate truth from error. But if you land here and spend 
your life in this place, then anything that comes your way that is not true, you can say, no way, I know that is false. Here I stand. We have an enemy. His name is Satan, our adversary, the accuser, the devil, the dart thrower. But we have a weapon. And that weapon is our shield of faith where we hold on to the promises of God, believing that they are true. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12 says it like this. It says, this is the true grace of God. When the devil tries to twist it, stand firm. When the devil tries to accuse you, stand firm. When everything else in the entire world seems to be falling apart, take your shield, hold on to the promises of God by faith, and stand firm. The only way to win this war, to fight the good fight, to survive the attacks of the enemy is to truly understand that our struggle is real. We have a real enemy. He's an adversary, a dart thrower, an accuser. But that shouldn't cause us to cower in fear. Instead, we stand up to him with the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, not being deceived, not being tricked, not being surprised, being ready for our adversary, the devil. And when that lion comes around and when that snake comes out, we chop off its head, resist, standing firm in the faith, knowing that Subash and all of our brothers around the world and people down throughout the history of the church have done the exact same thing and God's church wins. God is in control. God is good, and Jesus wins. There is tremendous, tremendous joy ahead. When you read this book of 1 Peter, it assures you of this over and over again. It says, yeah, the trials are going to be hot. The fire is going to burn, but God is with you. Therefore, verse 10, after you have suffered for a little while, The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Therefore, stand firm. Father, we thank you and praise you for your good word to us. Lord, we know that the fire is hot. Attacks of the enemy are real. And sometimes those darts get through. And they hurt. And I'm sorry for the many times I've put my shield down or failed to pick up my sword. That's ruined a day or ruined a night or ruined a week. For some and many, it's even ruined a year or years of their lives. But Lord, as we pick up the pieces and we put on the armor, we pray that you would help us to stand firm. 
that you would protect us in the power and strength of your might. And that as a result, yours would be the dominion. Yours would be the rule. Yours would be the honor and glory and power forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.